I hope you're ready to hear because the Lord is already speaking. He's already begun His message this morning and He began speaking through Jim at communion. And I continue to be amazed at how the Lord has a very specific message for us to hear. And He said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. My jaw dropped when Jim read that verse. Keep that in your hearts as we study the Word this morning. I will never leave you or forsake you. This is our Father's heart for His people. Jonah chapter 3, verse 1. Now the Word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk, and he cried out and said, Yet forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And then the people of Nineveh believed in God. And they called a fast, and they put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on the ashes. He issued a proclamation, and it said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. But both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth. And let men call on God earnestly, that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which He had declared He would bring upon them, and He did not do it. Chapter 4, verse 1. But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. Father, as we open Your Word, we approach You with open hearts. And we simply invite You to continue to sanctify and to continue to work on us. Father, lift from us eyes of judgment, eyes that we might have on others. Refocus our eyes on Jesus and continue Your mighty work that we might be glorified in the day that You call us home. Glorified in the name of Jesus. Glorified simply because we belong to You. In Jesus' name. Amen. Don't let me forget, we have something else I want to pray for. Real serious thing, we'll pray as soon as we're done. So, Jake or Leslie, either one of you, flag me down. If you were an Israelite in the mid-700s B.C., and the Lord asked you to go and to cry out against the wickedness and the brutality of Assyria. To go into Assyria, to the capital city of Nineveh, the most brutal nation of the entire day. What would you do? Would you go? Would you as a Jew in Israel hear the word of the Lord and respond to the word of the Lord and go where the Lord has sent you to go? Now, when we think about this story, it's easy to really heavily judge Jonah. And I'm going to in a few minutes. 
it's easy to see the dark side of Jonah and of his attitude and of his behavior. Sometimes it's not so easy to think about where he was asked to go. God said go to Nineveh and Jonah headed the opposite direction. What's wrong with him? Well, would you go? Would you go to Nineveh as a Jew? Speaking of Nineveh, my friend Steve alerted me to something. I looked it up. He was correct. You know Nineveh by its modern name today, Mosul. Mosul, Iraq is Nineveh. The ruins of Nineveh are there in Mosul. A decade ago, 60,000 Arab Christians lived in peace, so-called, or to a degree, among their Muslim neighbors there in Mosul. They accepted one another. They allowed each other to live. 60,000 of them last month, July of this year, Islamic terror entity ISIS, calling themselves the Islamic State, claimed Mosul, among other cities in Iraq. You've been watching this take place. And they announced there that all non-Muslims must either convert, pay an infidel tax, or die, according to the Quran. And those are Muhammad's words. If you are a non-Muslim, you have those three choices. You can pay an infidel tax, you can convert to Islam, or you can have your head chopped off. Very quickly after ISIS declared this, the tax option option was revoked and it was either convert or die. Christians this last month were beaten, robbed, driven out, and murdered. Homes were burned. Churches immediately became mosques. And by most accounts, within one month's time, not a single Christian family of the original 60,000 remains in Mosul. Muhammad called for conversion. Jesus sent out invitations. Muhammad imposed taxation. Jesus offered freedom, liberty. Muhammad demanded beheading while Jesus came to give life. Such a stark contrast. But would you travel to Mosul today with a warning from the Lord to take to ISIS? Would you jump on the next flight out of this country if the Lord said, Go, I want you to warn ISIS there in Mosul that they are going to be taken down in 40 days. Go tell them, would you do it? Now that's a little different perspective, isn't it? But it would have been no different for Jonah back in his day with the brutality of the Assyrians there in Nineveh. I can understand why Jonah didn't want to go. It makes sense to me. I can understand if it was the danger. I can understand if it was fear, perhaps even for his life. But it wasn't. The greatest surprise of the story of Jonah is God's grace to Assyria. But the second greatest surprise to me is Jonah's opposition to their salvation. As you will see, Jonah simply did not want to see the Assyrians saved. That's why he didn't go. Well, that's a little harsh judgment, Rick. We'll see it come up. Most of you know the story of Jonah and the whale. We talked about it Wednesday night. We went through the first couple of chapters. I want to bring you up to speed. I want you to understand that the Word of God, both written and in person, confirms the historicity of Jonah. Jonah the man, Jonah the message, and Jonah and the mammal, or fish, depending on if, you know, whale or fish. 
The Hebrew word for the great fish that swallowed up Jonah at the end of chapter 1 is gadol dog. Gadol dog. Gadol meaning great and dog, D-A-G, not D-O-G, meaning a class of animal that lives in the water. It's, it's a rather vague word. It's a swimming creature. It's some kind of beast or animal that lives in the water. So it could be like a sperm whale, which would be large enough, or it could be a whale shark, which would additionally be large enough. And 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25, puts Jonah on the land and in the sea between 793 and 753 B.C. So this is when we know this man Jonah lived. Jesus doubly affirmed Jonah's existence, not only his existence as a prophet, but his encounter at the sea as prophetic. Matthew chapter 12, verse 40, Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, Jesus said, So will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus did not say, Just as the parable of Jonah taught, just as that metaphorical story was given, He says, Just as Jonah the prophet was in the belly of the sea monster, of the sea creature, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. He says the men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here, Jesus said, speaking of course of himself. Later on, Matthew 16, 14, Jesus said, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and a sign will not be given it except the sign of Jonah. What happened to Jonah, you're going to see replayed in a different way. Jonah is a picture in type of what's going to happen. To me, Jesus is saying, the resurrection. To call Jonah a fable, and I'm repeating myself, but I want to make sure everyone in our fellowship hears this loud and clear. To call Jonah a fable is to call Jesus a liar, and I call that heresy. And on this point, I don't believe we can have separate opinions. Maybe you do. But if you do, I think you need to take a harder look at what the Scriptures have to say. And have an open heart to the literal nature of God's Word. I'm not saying someone is not saved who doesn't believe the story of Jonah to be literal. What I am saying is the Bible teaches it as literal. Jesus claimed it as literal. And to claim it as anything else is to say, Jesus, you're lying to us. And again, that's a heresy. My opinion. Jonah's name, Jonah's name means dove. Dove. And it fits very well. He's the dovish prophet who took flight. If you go back to chapter 1, verse 3, it says, Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Nineveh was north and east. Tarshish was as far west as you could go. Pretty much in Scripture, when you're talking about Tarshish, they're talking about the other side of the world. It was the other side of Spain. So Jonah heads off. He he takes flight like a dove, flying in the opposite of God's calling. Not even going in the direction, not even staying put, he takes flight. Secondly, Jonah nested in the hold of the ship. His name fits. Verse 5 tells us that he fell asleep there in the hole. The soldiers became afraid. Every man cried to his God. They threw the cargo which was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone, note this, gone below into the hold of the ship, laying down, and had fallen sound asleep. 
So the captain approached him and said, How is it that you are sleeping? Get up, call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. Jonah took passage on a boatload of pagans with a boatload of pagans rowing for their lives and he's sleeping what we call Wednesday night the sleep of indifference. Well, how can you throw that on Jonah? How can you blame him for being indifferent to their salvation? The poor guy was asleep. Obviously, he was tired. This is an early indicator in the story, I believe, of a lack of concern for the lost outside Israel. If I can put words into Jonah's mouth, he may say something like, I'm a Jew. I'm an Israelite. I am here to speak prophetically to my people. Why would I talk to these heathen on this boat? And so the first thing he does upon securing passage and boarding the ship is he goes down into the hole and falls asleep. He's as far away from the men on the boat as possible as he sleeps the sleep of indifference. And I look at Jonah and I think, how many of us can be that way? And how often have I been that way, sleeping the sleep of indifference in the cozy cot of the church while the world is breaking apart. And the Bible tells you and the Bible tells me we have a call on our lives to get up and call on our God for the sake of this lost world. To look at the heathen of this world, the pagans, the non-believers, the sinners, as where we came from and to cry out on their behalf rather than to shout out judgment. We're called to be lovers. We're called to be gracious. We're called to bring compassion and to speak the truth, but to speak it in love. Paul said in Ephesians 5.14, Awake, sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. And so the captain of the ship goes down. He wakes up. Jonah, come on, get up. Cry out to your God. We're all crying out to our gods. No one's listening. Because none of their gods existed. Maybe yours can help. Now when it was discovered that Jonah was the cause of the turbulent seas, a Hebrew prophet fleeing from the presence of his God, not only had he taken flight, not only was he nesting in the hold of the ship, but his heart fluttered like a dove. Verse 12. I'm going to stay with the theme. Verse 12. He said to them, Pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you, for I know that on account of me this great storm has come upon you. Now, A lot of things have been said about Jonah doing this. Some have said, what a brave prophet to sacrifice himself for the men of that boat. I don't think so. I believe Jonah was crying in suicidal self-pity. It's my fault. I knew he'd catch me. Might as well just toss me into the sea. Throw me overboard. Woe is me. You'll be fine. Just chuck me into the water. And the sailors didn't want to. Interesting turn in the story. The sailors didn't want... They keep rowing. And they keep trying everything they can and throwing other things overboard. Finally, the ship is about to break apart. They're at the end of their rope, so to speak. And and they finally say, Lord. And they cry out to Jonah's God. Yahweh. They pray. Please don't hold this man's blood against us. And they chuck him overboard. Verse 15 says they picked up Jonah, threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. And that's when things took an unusual turn. Because Jonah, who took flight and then nested in the hold of the ship and fluttered like a dove, he got into a flap with a big fish. (laughs) 
Thank you. (laughs) The creature swallows him whole, and in chapter 2, we get to hear what it sounds like when doves cry. (laughs) Sorry for that one. But to Jonah's credit... And that's just an overview of the story. Again, to bring you all up to speed. But in chapter 2, to the prophet's credit, we have one of the most beautiful prayers out of despair in the Scriptures. I shared on Wednesday night, if you are in a dark place, if you are hopeless, if you are hurting, Jonah chapter 2 is a great place to drop anchor and spend some time with the Lord. And to be with Him. Jonah is praying the Psalms in Jonah chapter 2. We looked at that Wednesday night. The words coming out of his mouth and out of his spirit are coming straight out of Scripture. And he is praying a prayer of faith and he has no guarantee from the Lord that he's ever going to get out of that fish's belly. He's there probably unto his death, but he's praying in faith to the Lord and he's crying out in his distress and he is praising the Lord and trusting the Lord and it is a beautiful section of Scripture, Jonah 2. So we give him kudos for that one. Props to Jonah the prophet who did trust the Lord in the worst of all circumstances. And after three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, Jonah chapter 2 verse 10 tells us, Then the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. Blah! Now, we haven't even gotten into chapter 3 and 4 yet, but I want you to hear this. Even a prophet of the Lord can get off course. I looked in an article just this last week that that said, uh, rock star pastors are losing their luster. And it specifically talked about Mark Driscoll at Mars Hill down there in Seattle. And he's kind of a rock star. You know, they've got 15 different campuses and and they're projecting his image all over the place. and, And there are people getting after him for his popularity, for his church's popularity, and people are saying, is it Mars Hill, is it the Word of God, or is it that he's just you know, so interesting uh, a person himself? A rock star pastor. We have several of them in our country and the world today. Guys that really stand out, and you start to wonder, is it the man or is it the message? And I find it interesting. Rock star pastors losing their luster. I was a little discouraged. I thought maybe that will eventually happen to me. Why are you laughing? Even a... Even a prophet of the Lord can get off course. And Jonah had. And it may be fear. And it can be discouragement. It can be self-doubt. All these things can cause a person to lose their way. But listen, whether you're dovish or you're hawkish in your faith, and whether you're, you're really kind of a cool, slow mover, or you're a fiery go-getter, so many different personalities in the church understand this. No matter who you are, if you have heard the Lord, God's got a call on your life. And even if you've jumped ship and you've headed in the opposite direction, God still has a call on your life. I love how the story picks up in chapter 3. God's renewed call now on Jonah. And I find this interesting. Now the word of the Lord, chapter 3, verse 1, came to Jonah the second time. (laughs) Which is amazing because after all that he had been through, I would have left him in the belly of the fish. Digest that for a while. You know, prophet who runs away. God calls him again. A second time. 
saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. Note how different that is from Jonah's first call. Verse 2 of chapter 1, the Lord had said, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Now he just says, Go to Nineveh and proclaim to it what I'm going to tell you to say. You go there, and when you get there, I'll tell you what to say. This is different. It's an interesting change. What's God doing? He's reinstating the call by inviting Jonah to simply take a walk. Let's not even talk about the message. That obviously had you a bit freaked out. Let's set that aside. I'll tell you what to say at the right time. Right now, I just want you to go. Just go there. Verse 3, So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. John Corson tells how three separate cases or instances of people being swallowed by a great fish or swallowed by whales had the same outcome. All three, in all three instances, the men who came out alive were bleached and hairless. Bleached white and hairless. And Corson says, here comes Jonah out of the sea. (laughs) Speaking, repent! You've got a smooth white specter crying out, repent! And if, if this holds true with these other people, he would have had no eyebrows, no facial hair, no hair on his head, no hair on his arms or legs. He would have been smooth and milky white. <laughs> Repent! I would. <laughs> but you got to pause with that, with that thinking, interesting though it may be. Jonah wasn't puked out of the sea directly onto the shores of Nineveh. As we shared midweek, the only shores of Nineveh were the Tigris River. Jonah was in the Mediterranean. Now I mentioned Wednesday night, it was a 375 mile walk to Nineveh. I was wrong. The closest shoreline from the nearest Mediterranean coastal inlet, which is Dorchal, Turkey today, to Nineveh, Mosul today, it's 481 miles. That is quite a journey, quite a distance. And according to fitness experts, it takes the average person about 12 hours to walk 35 miles. And that's not straight out of the belly of a fish. At best, Jonah had a two-week journey by foot through hot desert sands. So he probably, by the time he got to Nineveh, was at least pinkish. It's not including time to shower off the fish juice and grab a change of clothes. Perhaps he picked up, I don't know, an Old Navy. (laughs) So why does the Bible tell us it took him three days? Read it again. It doesn't. It says Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. The walk through Nineveh from one side to the other took three days. It would have taken Jonah a good two weeks to get from the Mediterranean coast all the way to Nineveh. And then to walk the city would take an additional three days to go from one side to the other. It was a colossal city in size and in scope. And what verse 3 describes is two walks of Jonah. 
hinted at this midweek. Two walks of Jonah. The walk to obedience and then the walk of obedience. The walk to obedience, which is the journey just to get to Nineveh. Go there and I'll tell you what to say when you get there. But first thing I want you to do is just go. I'm not even giving you the program. Just go. Get there. Be there. The walk to obedience. To Nineveh. And then the walk of obedience, which would be through Nineveh. And God allows Jonah the grace to simply get to the destination of obedience. And he does that. His grace for us just to get to the place where we then will obey Him. Which is an obedience in and of itself. Why does He do this? He is allowing Jonah to see where his feet will go. Another opportunity to go where he was told to go in the first place. Proverbs 16.9 says, The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Psalm 37.23 The steps of a man are established by the Lord and he delights in his way. Jeremiah 10.23 I know, O Lord, that a man's way is not in himself, nor is it in a man who walks to direct his steps. And the wonderful thing about looking at Jonah, and I can so relate to him, is all that's needed for the walk to obedience is a willingness to go. That's all I need. I don't need revelation. All I need is the will to walk the way of His calling. What happens when I get there? I don't know. What's it going to look like when I arrive? I'm not sure. Will you go? I can do that. I don't have to know the program. And Jonah didn't fully know it. At this point, he's just told to go. Spurgeon says, I pray you, be not among the foolish ones who will be carried about on every wind of fancy and perversity. To the law and to the testimony should be our cry that we may not appeal to inward movements and impulses. That we walk where God says to walk. How do I know where that is if He's not talking to me? To the law and to the testimony. To the Word of God. Because if you will simply walk according to His Word, then all the other things that He calls you, that He calls me to obey, those will come about. He will reveal those things. But right up front, He just calls me to take a walk to obedience. Walk the Word of God. Like Isaiah, who has this amazing, phenomenal scene, this this vision of heaven, and here's the word of the Lord, cry out from the temple, Isaiah 6, verse 8, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And then I said, Isaiah speaking, Here I am, send me. He didn't know what he was going to do. He didn't know how it would end up. All he knew was he was willing to go. Take me to the place of obedience, Lord. Paul had the same experience. As the Lord Jesus called him on that road to Damascus, Acts 26.16, the Lord said to Paul, Get up and stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you to appoint you a minister and a witness not only to the things which you have seen, but also to things in which I will appear to you. In other words, there's much more, Paul. There are things you haven't even seen or heard from me yet. You will. I'm just appointing you to go. And listen, all the revelation that Isaiah got, all the revelation that Paul got, and all the revelation that Jonah needed was Jesus. Not the what, but the who. Who is calling you to go? Jonah 
Jonah, it's me, the Lord. Will you go where I told you to go in the first place? The walk to obedience. 2 Corinthians 1.19 tells us, the Son of God, Christ Jesus, who was preached among you by us, by me, Paul says, and Sylvanus and Timothy, was not yes and no, but is yes in Him. As many are the promises of God in Him, they are yes. Therefore also through Him is our amen, our yes, to the glory of God through us. All we need know for the walk to obedience is Jesus. And if you know Jesus, you just start walking. He will take you to that destination. All we need to say is yes. Yes, Lord, I will go. And I refer back to this because it has been the experience of my life. But 11 years ago nearly now, God just said, will you teach the Bible on North Whidbey Island? I had no idea what He had planned. I didn't know what this fellowship would look like, where we would be now. All I heard was, Are you willing to start a church on North Whidbey? Yes! Now please hear me. I've had people say, well that took great faith. No, it didn't. It was just a yes. That was easy. That was simple. When you know the Lord's calling, you say, okay, I'll I'll, I'll go there. Don't ask me to do anything else, but I'll go there. (laughs) Don't expect too much of me. I don't know even what I can do, but if that's what you want, it's not great faith, gang. It's just, yes, sure, I'll go. And so, after Jonah's Mediterranean cruise, he finally says yes to the walk to obedience. And by the, no, by the time he gets to Nineveh, now he's ready for the walk of obedience. Now he's ready to speak the word. But God first just says, get there, verse 4. Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk. And he cried out and said, Yet forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God, and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. And when the Lord reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on the ashes, issued a proclamation, and it said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king, as we read, and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. But both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth, and let men call on God earnestly, that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. And Nineveh was violent. Who knows? But God may turn and relent and withdraw His burning anger so that we will not perish. Oh, that we had a leader stand up and say the same thing in America today. What a radical change would happen in this country if we would have a leader like the king of Nineveh who would proclaim a fast of repentance. Because verse 10 tells us when God saw their deeds that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which He had declared that He would bring upon them, and He did not do it. And I want you to get this. Jonah's sermon, Jonah's preaching, Jonah's message was not a three-point sermon dealing with felt needs and universal love. That's not what got hold of the heart of the Ninevites. It was the imminent warning of God's righteous judgment that radically changed a city. It wasn't, here are three steps 
to healthy living. <laughs> Nineveh would have gone, great, big deal. Jonah said, you got 40 days or this city is going down. And the people responded. Sometimes they do. <laughs> Sometimes the imminent warning of God's righteous judgment is exactly what the world needs to hear, exactly what I need to hear. Well, how do you decide, Rick? How do you know when it's time to preach judgment and fire and brimstone and talk about things like hell and when it's time to talk about grace and heaven and forgiveness and all that? I don't know. I'm not that smart. That's why we're teaching through the Bible. We just let God decide when it's the right time. But I know the message of God's righteousness, of wrath, of judgment is as important a message as the message of grace which saves us from that wrath. Jonah didn't even get to the midpoint of the city. He's one day into a three-day walk before the people are on their knees and repentance is breaking out all over. Your city's going to go down unless you change. And they changed immediately. And that's what happens when the dove arrives. Jonah was three days and three nights in the great fish after which Jonah the dove came to the lost of Nineveh. Do you see the picture? Jesus is three days and three nights in the heart of the earth after which the Holy Spirit came. The dove arrived and salvation broke out on the earth. It's a beautiful picture. Luke 3.22 says the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus in bodily form like a dove and a voice came out of heaven. You are my beloved Son. In you I am well pleased. And yet He was the Son God would forsake so that, as Jim shared, you will not be forsaken. I will never be forsaken. When the dove arrives, you start to get it. When the Spirit shows up, that's when the preaching Lands, And I don't personally believe it was because Jonah was bleached white as a dove that the people responded. It was because the Holy Spirit was there. It's because the voice of God was being heard in spite of the man. John 16, verse 8, And He, Jesus said, when He comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. That was a promise of what the Spirit would do when He was poured out on the believers at Pentecost and and after. But it was also a statement of what the Holy Spirit does. God's Spirit convicts. God's Spirit works where the head doesn't work. He works in the heart. His Spirit affects my spirit, your spirit, the spirit of those around us. Was Jonah a dynamic preacher? I don't know. I don't think Jonathan Edwards was. Those of you who know the history of Jonathan Edwards, who wrote that very famous now sermon, The Great Awakening of the 18th Century, his sermon was entitled, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Now that sounds like a barn burner. You know, that sounds like someone pounding the pulpit and shouting the words, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God! And it's been credited with igniting the Great Awakening. But it said that Jonathan Edwards read it verbatim from his notes in a monotone voice. In fact, the first time he gave that sermon, he gave it at his home church in Northampton, Massachusetts, and there was no response that we know of. Nothing sparked, nothing happened. He just gave the sermon and everybody went out you know, to Applebee's for lunch. 
But when he read that same sermon in Enfield, Connecticut on July 8th, 1741, he was interrupted several times by people moaning and crying out, what must I do to be saved? Why? Because the dove showed up. Because when the dove arrives, the Word of God is heard and hearts and lives are changed. It is never the sermon. God reminds me of this often. It is never the sermon. It is always the dove. It is always the Spirit. It is not the pastor. It is not the Bible teacher. It's the Word of God by the Spirit of God. It is the work of the dove. Gang, our call is simple. Our call is to say yes to the Lord and to allow His Spirit to work. Set your feet to the place of obedience and there share the gospel of salvation. And don't worry if you're eloquent. Don't worry if it's the one that you think is going to land. Just allow the Spirit to do His work. You preach the gospel. The dove will take it from there. 1 Corinthians 3.5 Paul says, What then is Apollos? And what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted, and Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then, neither the one who plants, nor the one who waters, is anything but God who causes the growth. The walk to obedience is saying, yes, Lord. The walk of obedience is simply speaking His Word. You just speak His Word to the law, Isaiah 8.20, and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this Word, it is because they have no dawn. Now, as I said before, the greatest surprise of this story of Jonah is God's grace to Assyria. Brutal, wicked nation that it was, God still had grace for them. Eventually they would fall. Because eventually their repentance would wane. But in that instant, in that moment, God stayed the hand of judgment because the people did in fact repent. And it's an amazing, amazing story. Who would have thought Nineveh would get saved? But the second greatest surprise in the book of Jonah is the prophet's opposition to their salvation. We finally learn now at the end of the story why Jonah fled from his mission in the first place. Chapter 4, verse 1. It greatly displeased Jonah and he became angry. Now watch this. He prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was this not what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. And the Lord said, Do you have good reason to be angry? Uh, This is just stunning. You know what Jonah's saying? I knew you were going to be soft on him, Lord. The second you called me, I knew it was going to be grace, grace, grace. So I fled, because I'm not down with that. <laughs> He's looking for fire and brimstone. Yeah, Lord, call me to call down fire on Nineveh. I'm there. But grace? Compassion? Warning? Salvation? Come on. It's like Jonathan Swift once wrote in kind of a parody, the author of Gulliver's Travels, he he wrote, We are God's chosen few. All others will be damned. There is no place in heaven for you. We can't have heaven crammed. (laughs) And that is what we hear in the heart of Jonah, who's saying, I just knew it. I told you so. There's God's grace all over. God loving people. I knew this would happen. Therefore, I fled it. 
Who among us can dole out just the right amount of mercy and judgment? Who among us knows when a person needs to be warned or when a person just needs to be loved? Who knows? Do we have any right to question the judgments or the forgiveness, the redemption or the wrath of God? Do we have that ability? Isaiah 55 verse 8, he says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways. Don't assume. Romans 9.20, on the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this? Will it? And the, the, the brazen attitude of Jonah to turn around to God and say, see, look at all this repentance. Look at all these people bowing to you. This is what I was afraid of. And he is so incensed that he would rather die than see the people of Nineveh saved. Verse 5, Then Jonah went out from the city and sat east of it. And there he made a shelter for himself and sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen in the city. What's he doing? He's waiting to see. I'm going to watch because I don't think this repentance thing is going to stick. I'm going to make myself a nice little place out here because it's got to be an illegitimate repentance. And when the city burns, I can say, See God, I told you so. Should have just sent me with that message in the first place. The prophet is pouting. Jonah is out there judging Nineveh. Paul says in Romans 2 verse 1, Therefore you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. Now I know someone might think, well Rick, you were sounding a little judgmental when you called it heresy for someone not to believe that the story of Jonah is real. That's a judgment, my friends, that I make biblically and stand on. And it is not my judgment, it is Jesus' judgment. It is the judgment of the Lord Jesus who said... Jonah, the prophet, and his time in the belly of the fish is an example to you of of my crucifixion and resurrection. Jesus claimed the authenticity of it, and I will stand on the words of Christ all day long and judge by His words. But to unfairly judge a people as Jonah did, to look at those who are lost and say they are not good enough to be saved, Paul says you have no right Rick, you have no right to make that kind of judgment. Verse 6. So the Lord God appointed a plant, and it grew up over Jonah to be a shade over his head. Some of your translations say a gourd, but it was a big, leafy plant that provided lots of shade. It grew up over his head to deliver him from his discomfort, and Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. This is the first time and only time in the story where Jonah cracks a smile. Where Jonah is pleased. Oh, Now now this is good. This is what I'm talking about. Now I can kick back in comfort and wait for the city to backslide and burn. (laughs) He's happy about a plant. Elevating this glorious plant above human life. Nobody does that in our world today. How gracious of the Lord to offer this sniveling seer a bit of shade. 
And how fatherly that He would appoint a worm the very next morning to take it away. Verse 7. But God appointed a worm when dawn came the next day and it attacked the plant and it withered. When the sun came up, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and begged with all his soul. Note that, now he's in his soul. Chapter 2, Jonah is praying and I believe at that point he's in his spirit. Spirit man, connecting with the Lord, praying to the Lord. Praying from his heart, but now he's in his soul. His soul man, he's speaking out of his head and he begs with all his soul to die saying, death is better to me than life. What is God doing? First he provides Jonah a shady place to cool off. The Hebrew word, by the way, in verses 1 and 4 of chapter 4, for angry is hara, and it means hot. Jonah, man, he became hot about this. And so God provides him a little shade and says, chill, dude. You need some cooling off. And then he sends the worm. And then he sends the scorching east wind. Why does he do this? God is gently disciplining Jonah. Let me just read this to you. Hebrews chapter 12. You may be very familiar with the verse. Hebrews chapter 12 tells us exactly what God was doing. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. He disciplines us for our good, so that we may share His holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble and make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. The Lord is more interested in Jonah bearing fruit than in Jonah sitting in the shade. In fact, the Lord has been cultivating Jonah through the whole story. You see, for all his fleeing and nesting and fluttering and flapping, even even in the brash disapproval that Jonah shows toward God's goodness, the Lord still loves this floundering prophet. That, to me, is the most amazing thing, even above the salvation of the Ninevites in this story, that God still loves Jonah. That God is still caring for, disciplining His Son. And that is so encouraging to me. I hope that encourages you. Because we walk down this road, we get down such a ways, and and we get off course, and we sail a different direction, and we fail miserably, and the Lord loves us, and does not forsake us, but continues to sanctify and discipline and work through us. Verse 9, Then God said to Jonah, Do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? And then the Lord said, 
You had compassion on the plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow and which came up overnight and perished overnight. So this was a supernatural action of the Lord. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand as well as many animals? See, God's not opposed to taking care of the animals. There's just a structure here. He is far more interested with people. But he still loves the critters. Okay, so that's cool. Take care of the critters, but just don't put the critters above the people. God says, should I not have compassion on Nineveh? And so the story ends. But get this. We never hear Jonah's response. This is an inconclusive story, Lord. You don't tie it up neatly. We hear nothing more about Jonah or even about Jonah in history. That dove has flown. (laughs) We get nothing. Muslims believe that Jonah was buried there in Nineveh at Mosul. ISIS just blew up the tomb, so, you know. (laughs) Jewish tradition has Jonah buried at Givat Yonah, which is the highest hill in Ashdod, Israel. So the Jews believe he came back to Israel and that his burial place truly is right there in Ashdod. But the point of the book of Jonah is not the character of Jonah as much as the work of the Lord in this prophet. It's not the big fish, although the type and the picture of the resurrection is beautiful and amazing prophecy in and of itself. It's not the salvation of a wicked city, although, wow, amazing grace... But I think what we see from chapter 1 through chapter 4 is the Lord saying, look, even for you who get a little scatterbrained in your faith, I will not forsake you. I am working on you. I will keep working on you all the way beyond the end. This is a story of divine appointments that will change a life. Why don't we get to see the conclusion? Why don't we get to see what Jonah has learned? Why are we left hanging? Because Jonah, like every single one of us, is a work in progress. And God was not finished with Jonah at the end of chapter 4. He's God's work in progress throughout the story. The Lord has been working on Jonah. Throughout the story, He's been giving certain appointments. There are four of them. Chapter 1, verse 17, the Lord appointed a big fish. To work on Jonah. You're going this way. I need you over here. Swallow. Gulp. And he gets him back in the right direction. He appoints the big fish to get Jonah's feet on the path to obedience. And then he appoints the shady plant. Why? Because as I said, Jonah's hot. He is freaking out. He is angry. And he gets out there and builds himself some kind of a shelter. We don't know what it looks like. Probably not a very good shelter because the Lord says this guy needs to cool off a little more. He needs some shade. And he causes this huge plant to grow up over and behind the shelter and to provide beautiful shade for Jonah such that Jonah is very happy. He's cooling down. By the way, the plant that God caused to grow up, and this interesting side note is in the Hebrew, kikayon, Kikayon, it's a castor oil plant with large overhanging vine-like leaves. But the root word of kikayon is kia, which means vomit. <laughs> Isn't that great? 
And Shona looks up and goes, Ah, it's the Kikiya plant. It's the it's the vomit plant. Fish vomit. Ooh, bad memories. And God is reminding Jonah of some amazing grace. Yeah, being covered with fish puke is not a good thing. But I would rather be covered with fish puke than be digested alive in the fish. If given the choice. And those were the only two options. God appointed the big fish. He appointed the shady plant to allow this guy to cool off and to remember that he was just recently vomitous fish chum. And then he appointed a worm. In verse 7 of chapter 4. So much for the shady place. The worm comes up. It eats. And by the way, this particular type plant is a weak plant. It doesn't last very long. It wouldn't take much to die off. And so this little worm starts a chewing and starts a eating. And the shade, gang, the shade wasn't made for kicking back. And Jonah did not have it made in the shade. And by the way, that's not Christianity. To kick back in our churches, our shelters under shady places. Just the opposite. God sent the worm. The worm in Hebrew is tola. And you Bible students, you know what I'm talking about here. The tola worm, that scarlet red worm ground up that produces a reddish scarlet pulp. That pulp used for the dye of the scarlet color worked into the robes of kings and the high priest. The tola worm. The Tola worm that throughout Scripture is a picture of Jesus Himself. Psalm 26, verse, Psalm 22, verse 6, where Jesus says, I am a worm, a Tola, and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. Wait, so, so Rick, you're saying that the worm is a type or a picture perhaps of Jesus, but then the worm destroys the shade. Doesn't, doesn't that sound odd? Why would Jesus do that? Jesus does that. Jesus destroys the shady place. Jesus is the one who withered the fig tree. Jesus says fruitfulness is not cultivated in the shade of self-contentment. That is not where the finest work of Jesus Christ is done in our lives. No, He says in John 15 too, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, He prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. The shady tree goes down, the worm pruning it, the Lord pruning the tree because He's working on Jonah's heart. And it's more important that Jonah become fruitful than be shaded. Jesus did not come to give you an easy life. He came to give you life... But not an easy life, not not a shady place. He came to save and then to sanctify a people for Himself. And sometimes that means taking away the shade so that we might learn to be a fruitful people. The Lord is pruning Jonah when He sends the worm, the tola, when He takes away the shady place, when He sent the big fish. And finally, God appointed a scorching east wind. <laughs> Why? To give the prophet a little perspective. First the prophet was hot under the collar. Now he's cooled off. And now God sends him. It's a morning wind blowing across from the east. And it would be hot and dry and miserable. Why? To let Jonah feel perhaps a little heat of judgment. The heat of the judgment that the children of Nineveh felt. And notice this in verse 11. 
God says, Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city, of in which there are more than 120,000 people who do not know the difference between their right and left hand? Who don't know the difference between right and left? Children. Children. We know the population of Nineveh at this time was 600,000 or more. 120,000? God is talking about the children. And He's saying to Jonah, Should I not have compassion for the kids? You want to see this city burn? Should I not love these kids who still haven't even learned how to throw a ball in the right hand or right from left? My friends, this world is full of children. People who don't know their right hand from their left hand. People who cannot discern right from wrong. Who are struggling to understand good from evil. And it's getting more and more divided where there is no discernment of good and evil at all. Should the Lord not have compassion on them? I am so thankful that God didn't end my story in the midst of self-pity. I'm so thankful he didn't end Jonah's story right here. But he leaves room for Jonah to take all of this in and to grow as a prophet of the Lord. Thank the Lord that He still works on us. And that He is still appointing moments in our lives, some good, some difficult, but He is always at work to bring fruit out of our lives. Just as He did with Jonah. And so Paul writes in Philippians 2.12, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. And John said in 1 John 3.2, Beloved, now we are children of God. And it has not appeared as yet what we will be, but we know when He appears. We will be like Him, because we will see Him just as He is. And how is He? Jonah already said it. Verse 2 of chapter 4, You are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Father, thank You for being so gracious. Thank You for being so compassionate. Thank You for not ending our story when in many cases we feel like it should have ended But thank You for the grace of another day. Father, the fact that we are all sitting here together in the barn this morning is proof that You have given yet another day for sanctification. Yet another opportunity for us to have deeper developed hearts of compassion. Lord, truly, You have not forgotten us. You have not forsaken us. You have been true to Your Word and You will be. Because You can't deny Yourself. So Father, I pray that we would be those who do not deny You. That we will make the walk to obedience and the walk of obedience. That we will accept those divine appointments, those things You've prepared for us. That we might live for You. And Father, we pray Your grace be poured out on this sinful world. In Jesus' name, Amen. Let's stand up together.